Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt Kelly and I take a look at the first cyber enforcement action by the New York State Department of Financial Services. It involves the insurance company First American, and it provides a lot of lessons learned for the cyber compliance practitioner. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, along with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, back again for another episode. Today, we are going to go into the weeds regarding the New York State Department of Financial Services and a recent enforcement action around a data breach. So, Matt, with that uh, long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. That introduction sounded rather short-winded to me. I thought it was concise. You uh, wrote about this. Uh, this case happened about uh, somewhere within, I think, the last 30 days. But this was the first uh, cybersecurity case brought by the New York Department of Financial Services. I was wondering if you might uh, start with uh, explaining to our listeners who the DFS is and why they would be bringing a cybersecurity case. Sure. So um, DFS is a very powerful regulator within New York State, and they have the purview to regulate any firm that is operating in New York State that uh, is either in financial services, so that's banks, that's insurance, um, or that winds up conceivably affecting those two industries. So, for example, a couple of months ago, DFS actually filed charges against a opioid maker uh, for inflating the price. Of, no, hold, let me recall this. They were it was Malincroit Pharmaceuticals, and they were charged with peddling their opioids to an excessive degree. And by overselling this highly addictive drug, they were committing insurance fraud. And therefore, DFS claimed that it had a jurisdiction over Malincroyd to bring some sort of an action. Um, personally, I think that is a pretty far-fetched, but it gives you a sense of just how sweeping DFS can be. If you do business in New York State and you touch financial services or insurance in any way, shape, or form, you might wind up within the long arm of DFS. That's generally. Now, here's what CFS, DFS has done for cybersecurity. In 2018, I think it was, uh, they enacted a regulation known as NYCRR Part 500. Um, and Part 500 establishes that any covered entity within DFS's purview must have written cybersecurity policies for data integrity, um, data, uh, consumer privacy, um, breach disclosure, all of the usual sort of cybersecurity issues that we have seen with, say, the GDPR and everything else. It's not quite like the GDPR. I don't think it has any right to be forgotten or anything like that, but it is a state-level version of cybersecurity rules that firms covered by DFS must have written policies and uh, address things like risk assessment, 
uh, policies and procedures for data security, um, policies for remediation of any cybersecurity weaknesses you find. The CISO must attest that these policies are in place and are effective and all of that fun stuff. So Part 500 is no walk in the park for cybersecurity if you are a covered firm, which then can bring us to this very first enforcement action under Part 500 that DFS just took. It happened in July. I know that's a while ago, and I didn't hear about it until just now because, frankly, we have so many other cybersecurity breaches, it's tough to keep up. But that's the background, Tom, and then that brings us right around to First American Title Insurance, which was the lucky winner of the first charges ever filed by DFS over cybersecurity. Matt, we had really, uh, if not a plethora of mistakes by uh, First American, one might also say a comedy of errors. Uh, it started with yep. a upgrade of a system. It then led to uh, internal policies were not, which were not followed, and then faulty remediation. I was wondering if you could just walk us through through those steps. Sure. So what happened, what First American is accused of doing, and these are only allegations, and First American says it will contest the charges, but anyways, according to DFS, what happened is that First American title insurance had this massive database of documents known as FAST, F-A-S-T. And to access the data stored in FAST, uh, which had something like 750 million documents up to 800 million documents by the end of the 2010s, uh, to access FAST, all of uh, First American's title agents and anybody else would need to use an app that First American had developed called Eagle Pro. So what happened was that in 2014, Eagle Pro was uh, upgraded, so to speak, but they had a flaw that was introduced that would expose the non-public information on those documents in the FAST database. So what would happen is you would fire up your Eagle Pro app and you would type in the URL and it would be whateverurl.com slash 101. That would be the URL, Tom, assigned for your database. And your uh, d- uh, documentation would pull up with all of your private information and your credit history and social security number and everything else. I, knowing how that URL naming structure worked, I could then go on and type in um, fasturl.com slash 102 and pull up a different file and then 103 and pull up yet another file. And all you had to do was change the prefix or I guess the suffix or the ending of that URL and you would pull up a different page of the FAST database and whatever information was there would be there for all to see. So that is a big security flaw. Um, It went on, it was discovered in uh, 2018, I believe it is. Um, But then what happened was that when First American did discover this, uh, first off, they misunderstood the severity of what this was doing, what, what this vulnerability was. Um, the remediation team was under the impression that no non-public information could be displayed through the Eagle Pro database. So it's not, okay, we have a vulnerability. We've got to fix it sooner or later. This is a medium problem. It's not like there's any non-public data being pulled up. They misunderstood that. Uh, that there was non-public data, which would make this actually a high-severity incident. But it was, first of all, miscategorized. 
and then when they went to enter this vulnerability into their remediation system, thanks to human error, uh, it was actually, again, miscategorized as low severity, um, just because somebody fiddled with the wrong knob or something like that. Uh, it got the wrong classification from the original wrong classification. So now it's wrong twice. Um, then after that, we had uh, problems where this vulnerability just kind of lingered. Um, it was supposed to be fixed within 90 days. That was uh, First American's policy for cybersecurity flaws. If we have this issue, it must be fixed within 90 days. And according to DFS and the people that it interviewed to prep up these charges, um, First American just didn't get it fixed for months. For five months, uh, they had sworn testimony from 11 different employees responsible for data security that there was, quote, internal confusion and an alarming lack of accountability with regard to responsibility for remediation and vulnerabilities. Uh, so my big point here is that when we have a policy failure, it's almost always tied up in poor leadership and escalation procedures to get this concern to the right person who can act on it with the right sense of urgency. And I think that actually is a point that anybody listening to our webcast or podcast here, anybody can appreciate that point. I know we're talking about cybersecurity. I know we're talking about the state of New York and financial services. And a lot of people listening probably aren't in that category. But policy failures, that's something you all listeners probably can appreciate. You know you have a policy that says when this happens, we do that other thing. And then this happens. And that other thing didn't happen. And well, like, why not? And so much of uh, the remediation, uh, the enforcement actions that you and I talk about, Tom, are about policies that just don't get followed through. And that is a problem that any compliance officer can appreciate. And many of us have experienced. But it seems to me that a lot of what went wrong at First American is just wrapped up in this poor leadership around cybersecurity remediation, who was in charge of making sure that stuff got done in the appropriate, timely manner. You know, never mind that they had already misclassified the severity of the problem, so a timely manner was still going to be wrong, but even when they had misclassified it and under, misunderstood the timely manner for a low problem, when it actually was severe, they still didn't get it done within the low problem timely manner because nobody understood who was in charge of trying to get it done. Um, and I think that that really is something that we need to focus in here, uh, focus on when you're looking at policy management is, do we have the appropriate supporting structures to make sure policies are carried out? So that is good escalation procedures. When you have an incident, does it then get escalated to the right person who says, okay, the policy says we have to do this. Let's do this in the time frame we're supposed to be aiming for. Um, and, you know, do we actually have clear assignment of roles and responsibilities? One thing that I loved about this was that the CISO, because a lot of people may wonder as they're reading through FAST, uh, the, this enforcement action over the FAST and Eagle Pro crisis, where was the CISO in all of this? So I will again read from the DFS charges and just let this speak for itself. When DFS asked the CISO why additional controls weren't adopted to protect non-public information, 
The CISO disavowed ownership of that issue, stating, among other reasons, that such controls were not the responsibility of FAS, of uh, First Americans Information Security Department. So when you have the CISO also pointing fingers at anywhere other than the actual IT security department that the CISO runs, I think that speaks to these dysfunctions that we all sit around wondering, how did this happen? We had a policy. Why did it go wrong? Well, because too many people seem to be interested in um, doing their own thing and not tackling a problem that crops up and not understanding who is in charge. I mean, I could go from there and I'll, I'll stop for a minute, but it's just it's really striking to see how policy management, escalation procedures and right, um, roles and responsibilities and making sure all of that is aligned. That was not present here. And that is the sort of menace that could strike any company for any type of risk failure. So, Matt, when First American finally did log the vulnerability, it assigned it to a newly hired, unqualified uh, employee. Uh, and you noted several failures around either communications, uh, a sophistication of the employee and their knowledge of uh, the requirements, or simply where to go to figure out what the policies and procedures were. Could you detail those for us? Yeah, DFS detailed these in some rather painful reading here. So this was a new employee for First American who finally did get the task of fix this weakness. Um, so the employee never received a copy of the original test that had discovered this URL vulnerability. Um, nobody explained the severity of this problem to the employee. Uh, apparently, they just got a laundry list of problems in the Eagle Pro app and we're told, go fix these. But nobody said, fix this first because this is a severe problem. Um, he was not provided with any of the policies and standards that First American was supposed to have to be able to fix security flaws. And then um, my favorite is just, quote, the employee was offered little support in performing these new responsibilities, close quote. Um, so I, as much as I don't want to get too meta and abstract with all of this, really what that is, is the process to fix security weaknesses. That process itself was also flawed. Um, never mind that they gave this to a new employee who did not have perhaps the competency or wherewithal yet to understand what to do, but there wasn't any roadmap for somebody else to say, okay, I'm going to give this to Joe Newby. Therefore, I need to give him this. I need to give him that. I need to give him that. Um, there was no checklist like that. And while we don't often talk about IT security on this podcast, um, that is something that actually in the financial reporting realm, in the annual audit realm, auditors do actually look at IT controls of this sort. They're called IT general controls. And one of them is that you have an actual verified process to go through and remediate a weakness that you find. Um, and yet again, we have right here that there's a glaring uh, IT security weakness. They knew it was a weakness, but they had no systematic process to say, here's how we get that fixed in a wise, disciplined, rigorous manner. And if you're talking about cybersecurity, and you're talking about a highly regulated uh, industry like financial services, you need that process. And First American apparently didn't have it, at least so said DFS. Um, 
We should say, how does this story end? Well, this story ends when a cybersecurity reporter called Brian Krebs, and I read Brian Krebs' blog from time to time. He is an excellent cybersecurity reporter. He found this weakness, along with some others, and they took their concerns directly to First American multiple times in 2019 and said, you should fix this. You should fix this. And they didn't fix it. And so eventually, Krebs wrote about it on his blog. And you will be shocked to hear that as soon as it became public, then First American fixed it. Wow, who would have thought? Um, so that all happened in 2019. And needless to say, DFS is not pleased with how all of this came about. Uh, there's all sorts of bigger issues we could talk about here. Uh, we never really dove into one of the original sins that happened when this all started back in 2014 when Eagle Pro was updated and introduced with this vulnerability. That tells me that nobody back then was thinking through a good risk assessment for cybersecurity in the first place. Um, this URL naming flaw never should have happened. Uh, it is not brain surgery to figure out that it could happen. People have been typing in alternate URLs to see what else comes up. They've been doing that for decades. Um, there are many easy fixes to get that done, which ultimately, once Brian Krebs wrote about it and everything blew up, that's exactly what First Americans cybersecurity people did to fix this flaw is they put in a uh, time expiration on these URLs. So you could call them up, but then if I tried to call it up again, I wouldn't get somebody else's uh, database page because uh, they're the, basically the page expired. I mean, I don't want to get too much into the specifics of it, but there are many ways that you can resolve that URL naming problem, which is so obvious it should never have been allowed to happen in the first place, yet it did which tells me that the people designing the app in 2014 didn't do as good of a cybersecurity risk assessment as they should have. And then this went on and on for years. Nobody understood what's the private information we have on these fast database pages. What's the risk that for that Eagle Pro app to pull up pages you shouldn't see? Who's in charge of fixing it? Is this a severe problem? Do we know? Do we not know? And none of that was in place. None of that was aligned and none of it was hitting the marks it should have. And so we wound up with this, you know, object lesson in cybersecurity risk assessment and the enforcement consequences that can follow if you do these things poorly, which you know, it, uh, it does not look good for First American. This is a very unflattering picture these allegations paint. Matt, it seems like there are lots and lots of lessons, not only in the cybersecurity realm, but in the greater compliance community, whether that compliance be anti-bribery, anti-corruption, whether it be trade sanctions, uh, whether it be uh, money laundering. And listening to your recitation, I was really uh, taken back to 205, 06, 07, and some of the things we saw in FCPA enforcement actions where uh, nas- uh, there were nascent compliance programs with clearly unqualified compliance professionals trying to uh, do something to clean up a company's uh, bribery or corruption overseas. Do you see something similar to that here? Well, the thing that I zeroed in on that really alarmed me was where the CISO said to DFS, it is not the IT security department's job to be sure there are controls in place to protect non-public information. Like, I, I... 
I don't know what the person means by that. Like, do does somebody else therefore then tell them you need to create the controls and they create them because the compliance department can't create an IT security control. You you don't learn security control coding in law school or in compliance school. Um, and that's where I zero in on like there should have been other people in the room to help First American or really any company subject to DFS regulation. You're going to need a team approach. Everybody has to get in the room together and say somebody somewhere in this company has to figure out what the proper controls are and make sure they're in place because the regulations require us to have them. And whether that is the CISO who's going to do it or they do it in conjunction with the compliance executive or some other person, I don't know, maybe internal audit is there to help them or a technology officer if you are home coding your own apps and then the security department vets them for security later. There are endless number of ways that you could configure your approach to this, but it can't be ignored. And it can't just be a whole bunch of C-level executives pointing fingers at each other saying, it's not my job. It is their job collectively. And if there was any one flaw that I that struck me as I could see a lot of different companies having this same mistake, it's a bunch of people in the C-suite pointing fingers at everyone else saying, it's your job was supposed to be to take care of this, not me. You know, um, you could maybe make the draw the analogy with due diligence over third parties. It's not the compliance officer's job to perform due diligence. It is the business executive's job to perform due diligence on the third parties he or she is working with. It might be the compliance officer's job to tell you that and develop the procedures for it and work together on it. But I know back in 2005, 6, and 8, there's a whole lot of people pointing fingers back and forth at each other about who's in charge of due diligence. And everybody so adroitly saying, I'm not the one who's in charge. It's somebody else. That conversation like that that rang very familiar as I was reading through the the CISO's um, response here to DFS that you know they're not in charge of these controls. It, come on, somebody's got to be there, and this job can't get done without the CISO. Um, so that uh, it really just that stood out at me more than anything else. I guess I had a less nuanced view of that than you did because I read that from someone who was running scared as fast as he or she could, recognizing that they had made a major foobar. There's that, true. That uh, Because if it's not the CISO's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. And when I read that quote you you put in your blog post, that's what I thought that CISO was uh, trying to say. But whichever interpretation is correct, or perhaps another interpretation, I think DFS will take a very dim view of that statement. Well, we should recall that CISOs are required to uh, attest to the effectiveness of cybersecurity controls under this rule. And to me, that strikes a lot like um, the fears compliance officers have about compliance officer liability. Am I personally going to be hung out to dry because my company doesn't take compliance seriously and our efforts are a mess? Um, Generally, no, that's not the case for compliance officers and liability. But I do wonder how that fear will manifest with cybersecurity and uh, part 500 here from DFS. It's a good question. And Tom, you might be a bit more cynical in your view, but I don't know that you're wrong. In addition to the um, 
obvious uh, cybersecurity lessons and what I see are greater compliance lessons. I'd like to end maybe with where we started, which was the DFS. And uh, the DFS is a state regulatory body, but has extraordinary power because of being in New York, uh, the home of many financial institutions and insurance companies, at least home domicile for the United States, and that they are really an industry regulatory leader in many different areas. They are the first. They were the first state regulatory body to adopt a cybersecurity uh, regulation. They were the first state regulatory body to actually issue guidance around what should be in a cybersecurity compliance program. And now they're the first to bring an enforcement action. Anything uh, about the DFS that uh, you would like to add? If it is possible to describe an agency as up and coming instead of just a person, I probably would describe DFS that way. Uh, it is a relatively new agency. And, um, you know, frankly, I think a lot of DFS superintendents could make their bones for higher office by pursuing uh, enforcement vigorously here if they want to. Um, so you do have to uh, keep an eye on this uh, agency. And I, in particular, what struck me, as I said before, was when they took action against Malincroit Pharmaceuticals for uh, drug pr- market practices that they said were tantamount to insurance fraud. And because we regulate insurers, including state insurers, that gives us jurisdiction. So now we're going to be up in your face. Um, like that's a really long stretch, but it doesn't make your legal bills any cheaper if you're Malincroid. Uh, and likewise, if you are any number of financial firms that might have a tenuous grasp to the New York market, uh, DFS will grab onto that tenuous thread and pull it as hard as they can. Uh, there are num- numerous firms, especially overseas firms, I'm sure, that are not thrilled to be in the U.S. market because of this high level of regulation. They can't avoid being in New York, but nobody really wants it. And now they've got this coming down on their face. Um, it's an intriguing department to watch. And uh, I'll I'll be curious to see what else they do with this regulation and just with financial services enforcement generally. Well, Matt, unfortunately, we are near the time, end of the time for this episode, but it's been a fascinating exploration and uh, we will have to wait and see what the hearing brings. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me, tfox, at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic and take a deep dive into the weeds of it. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being a loyal listener. And we look forward to visiting with you again. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave a message on the speaker app on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.